some things that stand out was I remember being bullied very aggressively, like grade three, grade four. And the only way I got out of that is I became the bully. Connor Topley, former Apple employee and now teacher, Connor tries to inspire students by getting them to think about the unconventional paths of life. Ego is coming in and saying, you, your friends are working at Goldman Sachs. They're working in retail. The next step up was to work from Cupertino. Yeah, the next role I was going to apply to was down at head office. And the reality was, and I think it could have landed, it was a lot of things were in the right place to make that work. And I was becoming more, yeah, more serious with my now husband. Very easy question, but that comes with a lot of baggage. Are you happy? <laughs> um... It would mean the world if you could just take a second to hit that subscribe button and follow us or leave a like on our episode. In exchange, I promise that I will bring you the best possible conversations. This is just a start for coding life and we have so much more planned. I can't wait for you to come along for the ride. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the rest of the conversation. Connor, thanks so much for coming on, first of all. Happy to be here. It means a lot. Typically, the first questions we like to ask our guests is where they come from. And it's interesting, I just want to preface that you have been the most requested person to come on this show. And I think there's a reason why, and I think we'll figure this out as we go on through this conversation. Right. But I want to twist the question a bit in the way that I ask it typically. If your life ended today and it had to be a book, what would that title of the book be? And what would the initial chapters of that book be about? Damn, you're gonna trap me right at the beginning. No, um, yeah. Well, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy also that the uh, the bots uh, voted me to be here. Yeah, thank you to the Russian bots. Uh, <laughs> um, man, I think yeah. If I was to die today, uh, even before thinking about my title, I would just start by saying like I feel very grateful uh, mm. to be at a point and doing work and be surrounded by people where I feel just like super super lucky and very fortunate. And, uh, yeah, I think part of it is like, I'm always going to steal a title from another book, but it has nothing to do. It's, uh, I would call it like stumbling towards happiness. Mm. And I think, um, I've always been a very like upbeat, bright person. I think, uh, but I feel as though like it's life's been a series of like, you know, stumbling onto things rather than like almost like a critical, clear path forward. And in that stumbling, I got to, yeah, say yes to tons of experiences, like, you know, professionally and personally that um, clarified what what matters most to me. And so I think that would be the title of the book. And like, what would the first three chapters be? Or what is it? What was that? Well, the first chapter, but look, that's interesting you mentioned it there because you specifically use the word stumbling. Mm -hmm. Stumbling implies that you didn't have the answer from the beginning. Correct. And so if we kind of dig into those opening chapters, you know, an opening chapters of the book typically indicate and set the pace for the entirety of the story and explain who the character is. Sure. And so when I ask that question, more so what I'm wondering is if I was a fly on the wall and I went back in time to see what that early childhood was like. Yeah. Like. Yeah, it was, uh, it was very idyllic. Like I grew up in uh, North Van and uh, I, my dad's an Australian immigrant and my mom's French Canadian. And so that like, I think that duality mm. shaped who I was. Uh, you know, I remember meeting my friend's parents in elementary school and high school or in elementary school. And I'm like, why do they sound different? Like, why do they have an accent or something? Um, but I, I, you know, my, I got really lucky with my parents. Uh, and I think that really shaped, uh, shaped my childhood. My mom was, uh, a full-time mom and she took her job very seriously. Like she, for me is the epitome of unconditional love. And I think it's the gift that keeps on giving, uh, in our family and also how I want to show up in the world. Uh, and my dad, like when people meet my dad, they're immediately like, oh, you make a lot more sense now because oh. I, he's, uh, very gregarious and, uh, a ball of energy, uh, mm. even in his seventies. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's just kind of, you know, the apple, at least for me, didn't fall far from the tree, uh, from the outward, I think expressions of how I show up, but I would like to think that my mom has anchored me maybe in a, in a, in a place, uh, yeah, that is, that tries to kind of reach people where they are and uh, rather than trying to get them to be something else. And mm -hmm. I think that's what I always got from my mom. So yeah, my, my child was very uh, idyllic 
And, and also, you know, I don't think I had any like capital T traumas in my life, but I went through like some pretty weird phases in elementary school. I think some things that stand out was I remember being like bullied very aggressively, like grade three, grade four. And the only way I got out of that is I then became the bully. It feels like an old trope, but I think for me, having experienced life and a sense of instability on both ends of feeling like I wasn't accepted. And then to the only way I felt accepted, but was by denying mm. the acceptance of others. It allows me to like, as an educator and as a teacher now, like I have a very quick pulse check on how people are showing up in different spaces. And I my focus is in saying, how can I make sure that no one feels that they need to be on either of those extremes, that they can actually just be mm. comfortable, safe who they are so that they can focus on, you know, learning and all the other good stuff. Hmm. What you brought up was pretty interesting. You were first being bullied and then you were to bully yourself. Yeah. And something I often hear is that like people become bullies because of their background at home. It's not stable. Like um, maybe their parents are absent and whatnot. Right. But from, a, from what I hear, it's like your mom provided you with unconditional love and she supported you like every step of the way. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you became the bully? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it happens for many reasons, but I mean, even if my home life was stable, I felt, yeah, dejected at school. I felt, uh, you know, alone, alight, isolated, lost my friends. And so, um, so I think, you know, the bullying comes from insecurity or uh, a sense of abandonment. And that happened not at home, but it happened for me at school. And so I think that was the way to maybe find some stability or power again or whatever I needed. Uh, but I don't. <clears throat> You know, I feel I feel bad for the actions that I, you know, that I uh, exhibited, but I also feel very grateful for having those those experiences because uh, I think it allows me to be more empathetic, right? It allows me to again, yeah, empathize with someone struggling and uh, or and even empathize with someone who's bullying, like who's exerting. And bullying shows up differently when you're an adult, but it's still there. And, uh, yeah, I think that's why it showed up. I was just, you know, having a rough time at school and that was a way to reclaim some mm. sense of stability. It's interesting because you mentioned the word there where your parents were idealistic at least. So how was that with the whole bullying situation? Did they know about it or? I don't think they did. I think they did know that I was getting bullied and, you know, cause I was like, I was pretty sad. I was, if I look back, like, you know, cry myself to sleep uh, enough nights. Uh, but I don't think it ever got home or it never got home to the point where they had to nudge me about it. I don't think mm. there were helicopter parents, but I don't think as much as there is today. Mm. So I guess in some ways, I guess I got away with it and then eventually grew out of it. Uh, and then, yeah, I ended up going to a different high school. My parents sent me to St. Thomas Aquinas, a Catholic high school, North Van, mm. and all the rest of my friends went to the public high school. And so I think that was a, a gift in many ways because it gave a chance for a full reset of, you know, I get to be, uh, it's not like I was reinventing myself, but I didn't have any social baggage that shows up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, uh, even though I'm definitely not Catholic now for an abundance of reasons, I do think that this experience I had at that school was, um, was pretty great. I got lucky with a really good class mm -hmm. and it gave me the opportunity to say yes to so many things like. I was like student council and basketball and soccer and the musical and all this stuff. And so, um, whereas I feel like at larger schools, you have to kind of pick your path. So yeah, yeah I was very grateful for, uh, for that experience. Interesting. Yeah. And if you would have looked back at that young Connor, uh -huh. what did you have told him? <laughs> um, I think there's like the first thing that's coming up for me is like, so much of what I look back at what I was doing was because I think deep down, I didn't think I was going to be loved. Mm. Uh, you know, and part of that, it was about like, I was in the closet, I was hiding my sexuality and I was like, if people only knew the real me, then I wouldn't be worthy. Mm. And then I then overcompensated, right? That's why I, you know, I enjoy performing and having a good time. And yeah, like, did I turn that up to 11? Mm. Uh, to make sure that I was loved rather than just being accepted for who I was. So I think there would be a degree of kind of saying like, even if it doesn't feel like it now, like exactly who you are is enough. Mm. Uh, and, and that's what I would, that's what I would say. I thought that's a common issue when, you know, people were fighting with their sexuality. Parents always come into it. 
do you, did you fear your parents or? You know, I didn't fear my parents, but it was almost in the absence of what they said, right? They were always like very loving, very supportive. But like, I grew up in a time where there wasn't, you know, there might've been like one or two gay characters on TV or, you know, you'd hear about yeah. the stories, but when you'd hear about the stories, it was immediately like backlash or this is the problem, or I didn't have role models that uh, were a- actually in my life that I knew were, uh, that I knew were out. And so, and so in lieu of them kind of saying like, whatever, you know, you're okay. Like the messages I got from the playground, from the church, from mm-hmm. society in general was, uh, it's not okay. And so mm-hmm. that was kind of evident to me and I, I navigated appropriately. What ultimately pushed you to come out is I know that from your transition from elementary right. to secondary, it was like a change of um, your environment and you were able to let go of social baggage as sure. you're not. Did something similar happen when you were 24? Yeah, I, well, it was like I finished undergrad. (laughs) So, and that's, you know, I think it's a, you know, the school, uh, and I think this is typical in a lot of professional programs, right? Where um, you typically attract a more conservative or, you know, uh, socially conservative, uh, you know, faculty base or institution as opposed to arts, let's say. And, um, and so my experience going through there, uh, like even though I knew deep down and that there was probably avenues in which to be welcomed into that community, I still was like un- like peeling back all the layers of the you know the story I had created about myself uh, to get through the world. And so once I graduated, I moved in with like uh, a buddy of mine from undergrad, and basically a couple weeks after that, I was like, okay, I gotta like this is now the new fresh start. And it was yeah, and I I wanted to. It was, it was, it's a lot of energy. It's a lot of energy lying to people all the time. And like, mm. and we, I think ever, you know, I kind of wrap one of my, one of my lectures at the end of term kind of saying that, like, you know, I kind of invite jokingly people to like come out in their own regards, which is like not about sexuality, but it's like, maybe there's something that you're just denying yourself because you think it's not accepting. And once you then start leaning into that truth, there's all this beautiful work that happens on the other side. I mean, um, I don't know the exact quote, but there's s- some degree of like, you know, the work of, of queer people is that the moment you start coming out, you have to start unpacking and figuring out what are the parts of myself that are real? And then what are the parts of myself that I put on to simply be able to get through, uh, because it was easier for others. And that's a, it's a long journey. And I think it shows up for different people in different ways. Um, but it wasn't, I don't feel pushed out. I just felt I had to, you know, um, and it was less of like, you know, I've heard someone say this as well, where it's like, it was more like I wasn't coming out. I was more inviting people in. Uh, right. and, I, and I was like, how much of it was I, you know, in not letting people fully in, what was I denying in terms of the depth of my relationships mm-hmm. and what was, uh, you know, what was this possible for me? So I want to backtrack there a bit before we, you know, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, graduation. Sure. Yeah. Business. Yeah. For me, it was really from a creative perspective because I said, engineering was a big consideration as well due to that factor but i just figured i prefer probably dealing with numbers than i would with hard physics and hard chemistry and so that's why i decided to go in business ultimately instead of engineering it really came from a creative background and often a story i give is how i was obsessed with legos growing up and so why business yeah i was it was very much creative uh you know avenue as well uh i grew up uh and still am such a big fan of music and performance And so, yeah, like in high school, as I said, I got to a bunch of things. And so I was like in the jazz band and in the choir and all these things. I was also uh, the drummer in a punk band. We made a few albums, two albums, I guess, two, two albums. Uh, and it was great. And I think, you know, my application was a lot anchored around saying like, in doing this, I got to see all, I got to see all the like problems and like how, uh, how much of the music industry was gatekept, especially at that time when there wasn't, you know, Spotify, where you can just publish your content. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of from the lens of like, I want to like f- figure out how to like change the music industry and all this stuff. And then I show up and like, you know, the music industry is being changed because, you know, people are buying CDs anymore. It's digital yeah. and, and there wasn't really an avenue in. And, but that was definitely the impetus, which was I, and I, and it was around business was a function of understanding this is how the world operates. We're in a capitalist society. How then can I find a place for myself that like doesn't abandon what I know is the passion of mine, which is my creative expression, um, and do that, you know, and and figure out how I can, yeah, blend these two together. Uh, 
which explains why I'm a teacher because I, you know, we do because you know I think there was there's very I there isn't a lot. My experience was there wasn't a lot of opera or like as clear pathways to kind of blend those two for myself. And even, and so what I f- very grateful that I have is that I get to enjoy all of my musical interests and, mm-hmm. and exploration as hobbies and stuff that I love to do. Um, and then on the business end of things, um, you know, I get to look at my role as a teacher as like being a form of creative expression for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm uh, very intentional around that the time in the classroom is precious mm-hmm. and that me clicking through slides is uh is not the most effective medium what's what what's better is connecting and making people debate and maybe feel something so they can dive in deeper to know something differently hmm. cool question are your albums public uh no they're not thank god they're, thank god they're only on cds and i think there's like a couple of my parents house so um yeah uh you know maybe that's best left for uh a, a personal reflection time yeah for curious about the, we often you know we, we talked to alumni bunch and something they often mentioned with solder is that it was a very toxic environment before mm-hmm. and you would have been at solder about 10 years ago and mm-hmm. you've kind of had the chance to see the progression process of how it's been yeah how's it when you started yeah i think I mean, there was definitely some toxic elements. I mean, you can like delve into the you know yeah. news articles and history and what have you. And I think there was a, a, and those things occurred. My experience of that at the time um, didn't feel toxic. And I think why is that? It's because uh, there's like a good exertion of my privilege, right? Like I'm, you know, even though I was closet, I was still like a cis white man who like I didn't see understand the implications of like the cheers at the time and. And it took a bit of you know distance and growing up to realize uh, the impacts that that had, but um, but I think that's only one element of what was happening. Like these you know these these things that were going on. But I do think what's I still I still think that there are some challenging undercurrents within the school that are just differently toxic. Um, and the one that I get to see you know quite often in the classes I teach is that the students get caught up in this you know this this stream of this is what you know this mainstream idea of like this is what success looks like and it's all these things and then people start you know second guessing themselves on truly what they want and then end up choosing something that feels right for everyone else and not for them mm-hmm. and so i spent a lot of my time like <laughs> in the lecture yeah. reminding people of that to 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 listen to the voice inside instead of all the the chat yeah. going on around them and i think i think that's a again it's not a I, it's it's I call it toxic because it's sending people down uh, a path and making them have beliefs about themselves and what's valuable instead of what might be true for them. So uh, I think that's, it's maybe just shifted a bit, but I, I think in general, I would say it's better in many regards. um, And, uh, and that's why I'm still happy to be here. And I also, I also feel as though that no institution, including the school is, is perfect. Mm -hmm. And I think what, if I think about what do I want to do for my life, um, progress is the mission, not perfection. Mm. And I'm happy to be actively engaged in progress. That's kind of the whole concept of status games, I like to call it. Right. I think Solder engages so much. One vivid example I can always give is that 105, cultural values and ethics, come into that class. At least 85% of that class is saying how it's boring, doesn't serve me any purpose, I'm just here to make money. Mm-hmm. And I think I was privileged enough to meet mentors that told me, hey, how about you read this book about finding your purpose? How about you read this book about how to balance play and work? And you communicate that message very strongly amongst the school. How was your journey through finding that process? Maybe a question I should ask you instead is, Mm. how would a young Connor have defined success or happiness? Honestly, not that differently. I feel, and maybe that's, maybe I gotta grow up a little bit, but, you know, success and happiness for me has very much been around uh, more about who I'm doing, uh, whatever I'm working on with and, and making sure that if I'm doing it with the right people and in with them with the right people, we're going to be focused on something that's, that's meaningful. Um, then, then the work becomes a function of just like collaborating and, you know, and, and the, and group, the, the right people doesn't mean we're always going to agree, but it's just, I think that's been a big function for me. I mean, I'm very much, a this might come as a shocker. I'm very much an extrovert. And, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm wired. It's like oxygen for me. Uh, and so, uh, 
So success is, uh, you know, at that time, it was it was about making sure that, um, you know, like making sure that I was saying yes to experiences and mm-hmm. and, and 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 acknowledging that those experiences themselves, whether they were good or bad, still actually became a fi- like a, a, a joyful memory because I can put it in its place. Like, mm-hmm. man, that sucked, or this was great. And, and, and from the outside looking in, sometimes I worried that like the current student population is, uh, it's retreating more, uh, you know, maybe it, you know, it's, it, it is because of the phones or is because of, you know, whatever else. But, um, I think, uh, I think saying yes and like, and, and having a sense of play with whatever I do has been how I found success. And I don't really want to let go of that because, I've seen the other paths and they seem really, frankly, boring to me and I just won't give them the time and energy. So, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you can echo this corner, but something I've often thought about is the reason why people kind of just go with the flow of life is because nobody can picture themselves ahead and in that position. And I think that's, if people just took the time to picture themselves, okay, well, if I had the Ferrari, if I had the mansion, how would that feel like? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you think? I think there. Yeah, I would just, I mean, and again, like I the... Those are fun, but I would even before even saying that, it would be asking like before I envision what that future would look like, be very clear with yourself today. What is making me happy and satisfied today? Because we can we can evolve the time, especially as young men, like your prefrontal cortex is still developing. Yeah. You will develop. But I think I was very, it was already apparent to me what were the things that brought me joy. And what I also realized that it wasn't the same things that brought other people joy. And so, uh, so you talk about like a Ferrari, I couldn't care how I get around. Like I, there's a reason I drive a bike to school or like ride yeah. back to school because like, I don't care. It's, it's a mode of transportation. What I do care though is about, um, you know, like I love adventure and travel mm-hmm. and sometimes I can do it on the cheap and sometimes that's more expensive. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess when I envision, um, you know, if I was to envision my future state of happiness or, you know, from where, from where I was now, I think I would be trying to be more deliberate about saying, being real with like what really brings joy now. Um, and let that drive, uh, you know, where you want to go. Cause I, I, at least for me, yeah, those external things, I just don't give a shit. Like, it's just not for me. Something I see, uh, amongst the students that I've spoken to is that like Vancouver prices are kind of getting ridiculous and it's, it's really hard to ignore money mm-hmm. when you think of your future. Absolutely. Like, and a lot of the um, people I see are pursuing like finance or accounting or just like high paying jobs mm-hmm. for the hopes of earning the salary rather than doing something they purely enjoy. Right. Like I know you've gone through a corporate world. You've shown sure. a lot of jobs. Do you see opportunities of like obtaining these salaries in areas we least expect it. Right. And do you see these opportunities like readily available wherever we head? Yeah. I mean, there's a degree after people graduate where you're going to have to go and grind somewhere uh, and, um, or you'll start your own thing or what have you. And, you know, there's like, you can chunk it into easy blocks of like learn, earn, return, right? Like I'm going to spend the first, you know, 10 years after graduation learning useful skills that I think will be applicable. And then, and then the focus should be towards leveraging that talent and skill to demand what you're worth. Uh, and then hopefully in the latter part of your life, you can find a way to give back. Right. Um, and I think, but in terms of like, yeah, I, I mean, Vancouver, like Vancouver is ridiculous. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, it's up there top five probably in terms of yeah. the disparity between cost of living and earning potential. And so it, um, so it's an un- unavoidable thing to consider. I will also say though that, um, you know, people get so focused on what they're going to earn as opposed to what that's, they're also in control of, which is how much they're actually going to be able to save. And I think, you know, um, again, if you put the like prices of Vancouver, you're like, cool. So I can save negative <laughs> numbers. Um, yeah. but, but there is an element of like when I, I guess, you know, again, it was 2020 when I, when I graduated. And so at that time I was able to very clearly be like, okay, if this is how much I'm earning, I can keep my costs. Uh, like the things that bring me joy don't cost a lot. I can keep it very dialed in and still be building wealth because I just said no to the things that were, you know, some people wanted to feel good or, or comfortable. But so, yeah, I mean, but I, I, 
my I'm so Mike's now my nephews now two like two of my nephews are graduating from SFU uh, soon, mm-hmm. and I like I empathize with them like trying to looking at what the cost of rent is and like cost yeah. of living broadly and in starting the job right now I do I feel I feel bad and I don't yeah. know, and I, I wish I had more than being like that sucks for y'all. Um, but I think it does come back to maybe there's it's going to elevate the diligence required and saying what do I need to be able to like have the life I want right now and then also and then focusing on saying I need to be putting some stuff away and doing that independent of what you earn. I think something that's underrated is doing work that you enjoy doing as opposed to doing work that's going to earn you a lot of money. And there's different perspectives on sure. But I just find that sometimes people think, okay, if I do this financial analyst job and I can earn this much money in New York and then I'll be able to get the things that I want. But I think what people don't realize is that they're intentionally putting themselves in a situation where 40 hours of your day are going to be spent doing things you don't enjoy that much. As opposed to if, let's say, creating or video design was something (laughs) you enjoyed doing so much more, you're easily going to be able to spend 60 to 70 hours on it just because you enjoyed it and for you it doesn't feel like work. And as a byproduct, because you bring that passion to work every single day, that's what's going to earn you those promotions and put you in a better financial position than the financial analyst destiny. And I think sometimes people just don't even think about it. Always comes down to self-awareness. I've always told that to Brandon, I feel like at the end of the way. Of course, I'm generalizing here and there's acceptance. I, yeah, well, I think it's beyond generalizing. I think it's acknowledging that it's a, it's a huge privilege to be able to even have Absolutely, that, to consider yeah. that, right? Because the majority of the world need to work to survive. And to be, and let's like acknowledge we're at, we're at UBC, we're at one of the most like prestigious campuses globally yeah. and yada, yada. And so, and so it's a privilege to be able to even have that thought. And then, um, but I also feel like it's, it's worthwhile to like, also not discount the fact that, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of life, you, each individual has their own obligations. Like maybe I need to earn enough to not just worry about myself. I'm actually worried about, you know, my parents that I'm going to be taking care of one day or my kids or all these other things. And so that might mean I can't go to that creative field because the risk reward profile doesn't work for me. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I would never want to detract from someone to say, to do what's right for them based on what they value. And if what they value means I'm going to do work that's less stimulating for me, but I know it's going to, you know, earn me more here. And hopefully I can carve out my passions and what have you elsewhere. It's, that's a totally valid way to approach it. In fact, in some ways, it can be better because if you're sitting there saying, oh, I'll work 60, 70 hours a week and I don't care, then what are you then letting go of by not simply clocking in your 40 hours a week yeah. um, because you're consumed with the work? And so I don't, there isn't a perfect answer. And I think this is like, this is why I talk about the idea of prototyping your life in, yeah. in Calm 202 because um, a fixed concept means you will just, you know, only go in the direction you think is the the, the mantle of success instead of yeah of uh of what you kids call fuck around and find out i think that's the the other approach which is truly what everyone is doing and i think the sooner you realize that you're like you're just trying to prototype and 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 trusting your gut more when you realize it's not the right thing and and move earlier so you can spend more time doing stuff you're meant to do Hmm. something that's Hits me, Connor, is think different. And it was famously said by Steve Jobs, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But you see where I'm going to go next. Sure, yeah. Is journey at Apple. Yeah. We're 10 years at Apple in a stage where the company's now reached, I mean, $2 trillion valuation. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. And what's that story like? It was great. I mean, so the I think the thing that really needs to be highlighted is how I got my start there. Um, I had some great advice from uh, a marketing prof and mentor of mine. His name's Dan Gardner. And I was in his office before I graduated and he, and I was talking about all the companies I wanted to, I wanted to work in. Mm-hmm. I was like, Apple, Disney, all this stuff. Yeah. And his comment to me was, all you kids can't want to go work at Disney, but none of you are willing to go work in the parks. And mm. I was like, hmm, cool. Maybe I need to put my ego aside at some point. But I kind of was like, all right. I was like, all right, old man, whatever. I'm going to go do my thing. And I tried a few jobs after undergrad and things weren't fitting. And I was in a point where I was like, okay, I need to do something next. I just don't know what it is. And Apple had always been one of those places I wanted to, like, I dreamed about working at. And I, my thinking was, well, I got a, a buddy of mine who works down at the Pacific Center retail store. Yeah. yeah. And I applied. Uh, and the thing was, I'm going to go work there for six months while I figure out what's next. And it was being there for six months was so great for me it wouldn't be great for everyone but like i was an extrovert i was constantly dealing with like customers and i love the tech and all this stuff 
I also got the peek behind the curtain in terms of like operational excellence and customer service excellence. And after six months, I got access to their internal, you know, job board where I then got to apply for a training position, which then led to being on their global retail training team, which is, um, was yeah, for me, the peak of what I got to do there. And I think, you know, when I think about, it's so important to acknowledge the start, which is it was, and it wasn't, it wasn't easy. I wasn't like, I just put my ego aside and then I was fine with it. Like I remember being there on the retail floor and my, my like shadow and like ego is coming in and saying, mm. you, your friends are working at Goldman Sachs and they're working in retail. And so I had to like process that. And then the payoff for me was, um, Hey, I, I said, I'm like, but I love the work. And then when the opportunities came to take on new initiatives, which I was able to take on because of my, what I came from with solder because of my other work experience. Um, and then it all made sense when I, once I got there. And I think what I'm really grateful for is that it, it really showcased me that like teaching is what I, what I'm called to do. And it just so happened that that big opportunity was in the private sector, teaching new employees and managers or what have you. And it wasn't, uh, it helped me dismantle this idea that like those who can't do teach. And it's like, actually, there's also teachers where the thing they do really well is teach. And it kind of gave me that enough of a runway to play with that. Uh, and so, which kind of led me to here, which, uh, I mean, I'm very happy that I had the place to play and, and, and be clear on that. Something we touched upon yesterday was how, like, we were trying to distinguish what differentiated you from other teachers. And mm. you were t telling me about like a class you took where, um, they taught you that teachers are supposed to remove the limiting beliefs of the students and they're supposed to motivate them to learn, but not exactly tell them exactly what they're supposed to memorize. Mm. How, how do you think you developed that skill? Well, it was the class didn't, the class didn't say that this is how you have to do it. What it showcases is that there's many approaches to teaching. Uh, one of which that we've all experienced is transmission where like the instructor mm -hmm. sees themselves as a means to transmit information. Um, and there's a handful of other models and the two that resonated the most with me, there's, there's a, the two that, uh, yeah, resonated were around the, the developmental model and nurturing model. And, uh, the developmental model is focused on, uh, connecting new information to, uh, things that the individual already knows so that they can like build a bit stronger web of information. And then the nurturing model is more in what you're talking about, which is that, you know, uh, and I kind of pull from both where it's also about, um, helping the students get out of their own way. To say, like, especially for, you know, even, even for intro to business or for, um, you know, Com 2 career fundamentals, they, it's not like they, the, the information is out there. Like anyone could go find that stuff. And so I see my role as more of a guide on the side as opposed to a sage on the stage, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to help them like get to where the information is. And then once they get there and they're struggling to be like, yeah, that's okay. That is hard. How can you do it differently? And it, and you know leveraging questions and coaching um because if i just say here's the information off you go instead of saying hey here's all the expansive information what i see is that the ability for students to go even further beyond what i even would imagine is possible when i'm not confining them to what i want to transmit so that's kind of why i dip into both those two those two schools of thought yes and they have been assessing with Connor recently is management. Mm. It's an absolute fascination of mine. Mm. And the way you were talking about teaching there, I could have probably interchanged that word with leading. Mm. And we're at a company like Apple. I think the best companies are truly those that cultivate the best managers. What's your management experience like at Apple? So I um my, I never had an official role of manager, manager itself. I did, I was running a team though of 50 people, even though I wasn't responsible, mm -hmm. uh, uh, for, you know, their merit increases and things like that, which I think would fall in that bucket. Um, and so I do think though, that my experience there, like the, the ecosystem, like the training at Apple is so top notch mm -hmm. and not everyone, I guess, you know, not everyone buys into it like anywhere, but. I think, you know, Steve Jobs before he, he passed away was very vigilant about recruiting the right talent to run Apple university, mm -hmm. which still exists out of Cupertino. And it's like, he poached the Dean from this business school and, and what have you. And so, um, I think what I got more from Apple was 
the facilitation skills, uh, the stuff that I get to leverage every day in the classroom. Um, and outside of Apple or outside of the work that I do now, I also work for uh, an organization called the Cork Collective and we run management training and, uh, and through, uh, you know, those experiences and, and elsewhere and being in conversation with other, other managers, uh, it's, yeah, it's just created this useful, like toolkit for myself of how to show up for, you know, the people that are looking to you for leadership and guidance, um, and, you know, some people might be great managers, focus on tasks and deadlines, and yet the the best managers for me lean into leadership skills, which, um, although they might be aware of that, the conversation isn't just focused on the deadlines. It's more, again, le- lean into that coaching aspect where you're helping people go seek beyond, you know, just what the expectations are. Like, well, where do you want to go to next? And inviting them to, to dive into that. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm really, it's so much about teaching it's really about putting the people first and something i was reading over the summer was the hard things about hard things by ben orbis and he famously coins the three p's i don't know if you've tell me more people product profit in that order mm-hmm. but really the scary thing about that thing was that he goes on to say the first two you can learn you can learn how to be product obsessive you can learn how to be profit obsessive you can learn those things being people obsessive he says you can never learn mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, is it, is, and so then the other argument is saying like, you're either, you're either a lover of people or people yeah. obsessive or you're not, and you can't learn it. I don't know that. I don't know if I buy into that fully. Like it feels too, I'm never a fan of like, def, like being so yeah. militant on categorizing. Cause I, I, I will say there are certain skills that people have and, and I'll acknowledge that like, when I look back to those early chapters of my life, the experience that I had in doing like, let's say acting, for example, like that gave me the opportunity to through all the various like scenes and work I did. Like I walked a mile in hundreds of people's shoes Mm. and doing that made me again, empathize and understand people. And I became people obsessed through that lens. And so now in a situation where it's like, Oh, the characters are just like the people themselves with their own narratives and stories. Um, I, 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 I fully agree that that should be the first lens. Like if you're not taking care of your people, then they won't be able to take care of the product and then focus on the things that lead to profit. Um, and so, but I don't think, I think there are those who naturally, um, focus on that more, but you can still break that down into very specific skills. Like you can be better with people if you're, uh, first and foremost, a great listener, and then you can like truly consume information, not to argue, but to understand. And that's a skill you can learn. You can be better with people by figuring out how to give better feedback and recognition to give them like fuel in the tank. Like these are all tangible skills um, that are, and, and with all that said though, I just think some people, uh, and I put myself in that category, I just, I, I genuinely enjoy and love people. Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's something I'm more willing to spend time on. Yeah. It just seems that when I listen to you or from what I know of you, it definitely seems innate. Right. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And maybe, you know, and so, and part of, and I, you know, if I go back to like talking about like my dad, you know, I think, and, yeah. and my mom, like part of that is innate where it's like, you know, my dad was the like loudest guy at the party mm-hmm. and, and, um, and my, and my mom was always like showing up in that way. And so like when I combine those two, it, it, in maybe in some way it was innate. I am also, um, but I do. I firmly believe that people who chat, who struggle with that can still learn certain skills. Um, will they always go to it naturally, or where they're like where their natural tendencies flow in and screw that up? Sure. And and so do mine of the things that I struggle with. Right. So I know a like, great like access to people is kind of through like mentorship, and through mentorship you can like mm-hmm. learn from the people who you see yourself becoming. Uh, in one of my HR classes, they were talking about how to find your mentor. Mm. And typically, like us students, we kind of look down upon ourselves. We're like, we don't have much to offer. And this person here is like the pinnacle of who I want to be. Do, do you have any stories of like when you leverage some of your skills to gain a mentor right. or things like that? Yeah. I mean, before I even say that though, I think it's like, I want to tackle like that limited belief, which is BS that like, I don't have much to offer. 
Um, you, ha- we, everyone here, or you know, everyone in the world has something to offer, and so you like whatever is filling that tank is is crap. What and do you I think people think that. Um, I think I think it happens more frequently here because everyone came. They were at the top of their high school, and you show up here, and you're surrounded by people who are e- equally brilliant in different ways. And then you get in your head, or you get these like grades back, and you're like, "Oh, I'm stupid now." And you're like, "Well, no, 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 you're figuring this out." Yeah. So, um, and then you know, and while you're having that moment, then people are joining clubs, and you're like, "Well, now I'm doing nothing." And so there's all these things that like, oh, that build this false narrative that you know that people are inherently used, you know, don't feel worthy or valuable. Um, but I, you know, part of it too, is that what you, the gift that you have to offer in reaching out to people is something very special. And so like, uh, I mean, let me ask you this question. If I can, have you, have you ever had someone from your high school reach out to you to ask how you got into solder? Not for me. I don't think people from my high school are showing up. Have you you ever had that experience? My brother. brother, Okay, cool. Fair enough. Okay. So, okay. So. If, if, you know, if, when I ask that question to students and they say, they if they say yes, I'm like, how did you feel when you got asked? Yeah. And their response is always, I felt great. I felt like empowered and all this stuff. And I'm like, so the first thing is by reaching out to someone to look for help is you were giving someone the chance to feel like feel needed mm-hmm. and the ability to pay it back. And so that is some, that in and of itself is a great thing. And if they don't have time to mentor or to, to connect with you, that's fine. But that is a true experience that exists. So let go of the belief that you're actually giving them a gift. Um, and then in terms of myself for mentors, I never joined an official mentorship program or anything. I think they're great. And I think it'd be a structured way to get dialed into that. For me, it just happened more organically. Like I got very involved in the Commerce Undergraduate Society in first year. And I got really lucky with who was running the show at that time. People who were a few years older than me and um and then and one of them who was um, uh, a few years older than everyone else because he was a mature student and he's still a great great friend to me his name's jeff potter and he's you know but was such a formative mentor in my life of someone who um you know like yeah helped me see that i could do so much and i think i needed that in that first couple of years because i was struggling academically so i had all these like ooh, all this feedback going on that wasn't great and he was really a true believer where i was going so i think yeah getting this is why getting involved matters because you get to meet people who are up to different things and sometimes the right people show up at the right time and like any relationship like grab the reins like give them a call go for a beer go for a bubble tea whatever and let it happen and i think in a more professional context you know, through being involved, I ended up helping out with like sponsorship fundraising. So I met a bunch of like the, you know, recruiters and what have you at different companies and met some great people there. And then the last thing was there was also some incredible faculty members at the time who um, said the right thing at the right time for me. Uh, one of whom is still like Paul Cubbin uh, has gone, I don't know. Yeah. He's in the Dean's office. He's fantastic. He helped create creative destruction Lats West or CDL West. Mm-hmm. Anyways, he, yeah. So I think all of those avenues are incredible places for mentorship, like your peer group or people that are just a bit older, your instructors. And that's kind of really what, and it just happened more. Yeah. I think that's so key as well. I think a lot of people group mentorship under this working professional. That's a couple of years ahead of me. Right. But mentorship is so much more. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think it's, you know, and then there became a point in time where I was in my, you know, third, fourth, fifth year mm-hmm. and was able to then try and give an ounce of what I felt mm-hmm. like I got. And so, you know, I think it's, um, I, I do think it's important to acknowledge though, is that like the greater the dissonance between you and who that potential mentor is, the more energy you might have to put into like yeah. making it happen. Why? Because I can tell you as someone who's almost 38, like my life's busy doing my thing and I want to help, but also like I'm too, I'm like my nephews and my friends yeah. and work and everything. And it's not that I don't want to show up for people. It's just uh, realizing that as the pers- person seeking the guidance, sometimes you need to be one sending like, hey, like any chance you want to get together in the next month or yeah. can I steal your brain for 30 minutes? So, yeah. I was kind of the idea behind the podcast. I had the chance to talk to the vice president of basketball at Nike. Nice. He responded after three months. That, yeah, let's have a 15 minute chat. Ended up being an hour. Call my parents right after. And I say, oh my God, I, we talked about this, this dream come true. And I felt this feeling of, it's so unfortunate that my parents didn't get to listen in all that conversation. Mm. And that's when I thought, but what if they could? Mm. That's when I reached out to Brandon and the podcast started happening because I realized it's such an opportunity for people that do want to give back, that just don't have as much time, but they can say, hey, 
I can do this podcast. That's gonna if it's listened by hundred people, that's right. equivalent of hundred coffee chats. Like, yeah. And since I was already doing coffee chats, so might as well just record them, and other people can benefit. Nice. So that's the whole idea started. I think that's great. I feel like, I mean, it's a good example of like of prototyping. Like you yeah. had a thing, it felt right, and you're like, let me see how far this goes. Yeah. And even if this doesn't end up becoming the thing forever, like the skills you're developing, uh, you know, the the insights you're gaining, none of that's going to go away. So yeah. again, that's why it comes back to saying like the thing that matters is to do th- like is experience. Shoot, say yes yeah. to things and uh, and you're, yeah, you're a great example of doing that. So shout out to you. And now I don't think I know many teachers who worked at Apple or at least were there for 10 years and then... Five years, five years, five years, five years. It's still at a young age. Right. Go back to teaching. Right. That's an interesting switch for me. And yeah. I know you were the next step up was to work from Cupertino. Yeah. The next rule I was going to apply to was down at head office. And and the reality was, um, and I think I think it could have landed. It was a lot of a lot of things were in the right place to make that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was becoming more, yeah, more serious with my now husband. And and so I said, I gotta look for something local and and it was less a, a pivot away from Apple and into something else. It was more like what I was, where I was in my element at Apple was when I was teaching and facilitating. So it was like, where else can I do this? And so I was looking at companies like Mount Equipment Co-op and they have like a team devoted to like training and development and, and all these other things. Um, but I thought, while I was looking for all those things, I reached out to my mentor, Paul Coven again. And, uh, and I said, hey, I think I'd love to come guest lecture a couple lectures of happy and maybe observe. I'm trying to, you know, get into this. And I'd been doing some work with him leading up to this. And he's like, well, actually I'm trying to, you know, offload one of my classes. Um, how would I put your name forward and see if it sticks? And I was like, I don't think I'm qualified. I don't. And he was like, I do. So let's see what happens. And he really kind of took me under his wing. I, I taught a class that January and I just, I was 29 teaching my first class and, you know, imposter sh- sh- syndrome shows up at many times, but I really, yeah. really felt it then. Um, but Paul was great around um, being, you know, uh, the warm welcome and coaching I needed to like make that term be, a, you know, be good, not great, but good. Mm-hmm. And then I got to come back and do two sections and then they kind of just spiraled from there. So um, yeah, I don't, re- I don't really see it as, as big a pivot. Cause for me, it was already clear that like, it was, it was less about the tech industry and more a matter of the gift for me is teaching. And so where can I, where can I find a place to do that for the next 30 years? Do you ever feel stagnant in your growth, personal growth? Mm-hmm. I know you've like worked here for a bunch of years right? and I know you've also implemented like initiatives such yeah. as like during the pandemic, you mentioned having like virtual coffee chats in the morning. Right implemented carb load and yeah. yeah but you stuck around with this organization for i'd say almost a year eight years yeah yeah quite a big part of your life do you see something that might come next or yeah what yeah. i'm pursuing now yeah i mean i'm so i'm in the midst of applying to grad school right now so i kind of snuck in without the academic credentials to oh. uh <laughs> to to be hired full-time and, you know, I think that shout out to the business school for having the ability to say, you know, we we appreciate academic qualifications and in order for my full-time employment, I'm going to go get a master's. But they said, we want this experience that you've had in the classroom and we think will be valuable. And I think hopefully, I think I've proven them that right. Um, but now is the time where, uh, yeah, I'm going to step away and go get a master's. Uh, the school is littered with incredible PhDs who are doing research in specific areas of business, tons of MBAs who have a, a, a depth and breadth of knowledge of business. That's great. And what our school I think needs most of all is people who understand teaching and curriculum and, 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 uh, you know, pedagogical, uh, a pedagogical lens to make the school go to where the future is going. Um, I have a lot of it, you know, through all of my experience and how I think I'm delivering classes now, I think I'm doing a good job and I don't think good is good enough for the next 30 years. And I want to dive into like, what does the science tell us around how do people learn and encode information? How can I design learning experiences that are transformative? And then how can I use technology in a compelling way? Um, cause we're in the wild west of AI and I, yeah. You know, uh, I want to develop almost like a more scientific approach to figuring out like, how do we address all these things? So 
the way, like, even if I'm teaching, you know, a good chunk of the same class over the last few years, um, I've always found like fun things to pivot and like digging through course evals and partnering with, you know, colleagues and other instructors to make it great. So I haven't felt bored yet. Um, I do think if I'm just teaching these same classes for the next 10 years after this, I will get very bored and it will show in my work. And so what I'm hoping the masters will offer is, uh, like a shift in perspective of what I can do within the work I'm already doing, but then also look beyond my little kingdom and into other parts of the academy, like UBC more broadly and saying, Hey, where can I put my skills to use in terms of like helping the entire institution, uh, do better work. And I don't know what that answer is yet, but this for me is the perfect home base. Like I love the work. I feel very connected to the community and, um, and so, and with the way the work is structured, there's chunks of time where I can do whatever I want. And so, um, after my master's and like things are more locked in here, uh, I'm just excited for, I, you know, I'm already, I'm already like calling up friends randomly like, Hey, I'm going to build this class one day. You want to, you want it? And they're like, yes. And so, yeah, I have ideas for what it could look like. I just want to get the master's done. So I have the, you know, both the academic credibility and the perspective that comes with what I want to mm -hmm. dive into. Um, to build really cool things. The biggest things that I think are most important is finding ways for students earlier rather than later to work on real problems and get exposure to actual companies they want to work at. Mm -hmm. And so like, why come on, when are we doing these like generic business plans? Like, why are we like partnering with like TELUS and Dewar Denim and like, you know, yeah. and like, and like cool companies that are doing stuff and working on real problems and be like, oh, did you like these students? Do you want to hire them for a project for the summer? Anyway, so that's kind of yeah. would be my ideal end goal. And why couldn't that happen in first year when we have great talent? Yeah. So anyway, so I don't, so there's a long way to say like, I don't know, bro. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a lot of ideas and I, I, I'm also in an age where universities move at a glacial pace, right? Like, sure, yeah. and, and I'm sure you realize that. Right. And so, and, but I'm at an age where I'm actually comfortable to like do my work that like helps nudge it forward. When I was younger, I would have been fed up and bored being like, what are we doing? Like we could have done this a week ago, yeah, a year ago. And now, uh, and now I feel like, oh, I get it. Like I can operate within the system and, uh, yeah, I'm really just like, frankly, I'm excited for what's next. Like if that's in my head, I'm like, yeah, if that's another 25 years for me, that'd be great. And that's, what's a bit of a surprise to me is that even from my experience here, it is very slow paced because there is a certain structure that needs to be put in place to then have these grades and then push students to the big companies and they just pick the best ones. And for someone who worked in tech especially, which is such a fast-paced environment, and you have been blessed with the gift that you know that teaching is your passion, why university? Right. It's not just university though, right? Like that's why I love being able to teach here and through the Forker Collective, like I'm training and coaching managers at yeah. like a whole range of companies. So, you know, the benefit of having this as an anchor and like the main thing I'm doing plus, yeah. uh, having the time to say yes to other things, um, is the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. I mean, the question will come on the other side, which is like, okay, well, how, how big is the yes here? Like do, if, if things, you know, become available elsewhere, what can I say no to here? Or, but I mean, yeah. that's, that's things for another day because I'm, I'm very, yeah, very fulfilled right now. And I also know I don't, I don't operate well when that's not the case. So mm -hmm. if, and when that arrives, that'll be the fuel in the tank. Be like, all right, I gotta, yeah. I gotta switch it up. Isn't that I find so interesting. I was listening to, it was a quick clip by Jordan Peterson. He's was starting this prototype university where he would invite a bunch of teachers from various different faculties within the UK and the United States and bring them over. I think he brought about 20 of them and then he brings students and an intensive one month right. program. And something that he laughed about was he brought in the teachers, he hired them and teachers would go, oh, well, what are the regulations? What are the restrictions? And he said, there isn't, I hired you to do your job. Mm -hmm. And instantly I thought to some of my teachers, I said, wow, these, they graduated from these universities and even talking to them after class, sometimes they say, oh, I wouldn't teach you this if I didn't have to, or I would do it this way. And I can't help but to think university hires all these great individuals, even like yourself, Connor, the creativity, you must have an ideas, you must want to implement, but can't because of the glazier kind of system you were mentioning there. I just wonder how, how do you battle with that? Or do you think university because of its 
almost government and bureaucratic structure will fall behind in this fast pace. Because I almost feel like we're at the verge where education and what teaching means is changing. And yeah, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. Uh, that's why I want to go study. Like That's why I want to dive into that at this point in time to say, if we are not creatively you know, playing around with how we deliver what we do, um, you know, you, you, you know the the writing's been on the wall for a while. The, the data's out there. Scott Galloway, Galloway's published some like very useful synopses of like the downfall of higher education. Um, and even with that, though, I do believe that universities like have the opportunity to do incre- like and, and continue to do incredible things. I just think that I'll just like I'll take I, I mentioned it before, but I t- I'll take time in the classroom as an example. Like if I get three hours a week with students in a full credit class, um, you know, if we're not dramatically reimagining how that time is spent um, and 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 how we're assessing students, like if ever we take on an assignment is going to be generated by AI, then like that's not a meaningful assessment of like a skill or it is. It's of how to do great prompts and get where, what you're looking for. But I'm yeah, I think how do I put this? I, I'll, I'll say this is that within the courses that I get to teach, there's still a considerable amount of academic freedom to focus on what I want. Okay. Um, and so, um, it, it, in a, in, and that's how it should be. Like, mm-hmm. I think the, the, you know, the folks who are doing the research and who are like the top of their fields should be to communicating, you know, what they feel students need to know most. Um, with that said, though, I think there's a lot of like structural things that make it challenging. You know, if there's multiple instructors teaching the same course, you then need to get buy-in from everyone to like focus on something or yeah. well, what's going to be on the exam then. And, you know, and I think with the longer the time someone's been here, the willingness to change Increases for sure. goes way down. Yeah. And so I am hopeful. I, I kind of like jokingly said to you earlier that like, I want to stay here long enough, uh, you know, to like, until, but like, I leave before I become the villain. And for me, the villain in education is people who are unwilling to like rethink how to do things, um, to not change their way of uh, uh, doing what we do to get them, give you know students the most opportunities. And I acknowledge that as much as I feel young at heart, they'll hit a point where I'm like, hmm, I'm not, I'm not able to do this anymore. And that'll be my time to exit stage, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, something that... W- I kind of think ties into what you said was the Korean education system and I guess the overall education system. So I know that teachers often enter the workforce pretty young or become a teacher at a younger age, maybe Mm. like early 20s. And they go into the role with a lot of ambition. They're going to be like, I'm going to implement this, this, this. And yeah, like I'm going to make these changes. Everything's going to work out. However, what they realize over time is that like, those changes can't be implemented or like there's a roadblock that they right. face. And as time passes on, as you mentioned, it's like you get less motivated. You understand the structure mm. a little better and you're not as naive as you were before. Right. However, I something I noticed that like teachers, although they're in that position, they still stick to their teaching role because of their experience, because they kind of need a salary and because they worked that role their whole life and it's the only thing they've ever known. Right. Do you think there can be a change to this? Like, is there something we can implement so that teachers see a way out into, not to stop working, but to do something else? Or should we change the structure itself in the sense where, like, make it less bureaucratic, allow these initiatives to thrive? Right, yeah. I mean... Like, as I said, there's, there's still, uh, a, like a degree, like, a, as there should be like a high degree of academic freedom for what instructors want to focus on. Um, but I think for me, you know, they are emulating the way they were taught. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like how many, you know, the folks who are PhDs are not teachers by nature. They're here doing research. And then part of their role is yeah. to teach, uh, which many of them step up the late and crush it. And there's a handful where it's like, all right, this is like the required part of my job they have to do yeah i experienced that you know it and they probably know it deep down too um or not you know they know they know it very clearly and so um and so i think i don't know i can't speak to the whole academy but i think what solder does quite well though is that there's still there's many um educators who are 
coming from industry. I agree. Right? Um, who have an MBA and who have enough industry experience. Like, I mean, let's take uh, Jenny Dixon, for example. I'm not sure if you've got her. She's yeah. like does incredible marketing prof. And she, you know, for the marketing app, like upper level marketing application class, she leverages her network in the business community from her experiences and beyond to find amazing client projects for students to work on. And so I think like, I think it's here. I think um, part of it is like, there is a youthful naivete of like showing up and be like, I'm going to change the thing. And you know, how many people work at UBC and one person's going to do that from your position? I mean, there's a, like a youthful, you know, beauty that comes with that. And I had, I had that same energy, which is why I think I got frustrated often in my early parts of my career. I was like, this is like, you call this innovation? This is embarrassing, you know? And then, but I, who am I to say that? And, and, you know, and when I did, it was like, calm down kid. And so, um, I guess here's where, here's where I've made, I get what UBC worked for me, which is that. There were plenty of things I wish worked differently in terms of the program, in terms of what what my beliefs are. And it's also, it's not my job. And so when I shift my focus away from the things that frustrate me that I can't control and zoomed in on saying, these are my little kingdoms that I get to operate in and I can do not whatever I want, but like within reason, kind of whatever I want, um, then that's where I play. And that's where I have the fuel to, um, to make things work. And, uh, and I also feel like I'm only scratching the surface of what I want to be doing. Uh, cause now that I've been here for enough time and I think have a bit of, I guess the, the credibility based on, you know, the feedback I've gotten from the school, uh, there's more willingness on my end. Now is the time for me to play, like go get my masters, play around before I get tired mm-hmm. because that will happen in my, I'm sure in my mid fifties or somewhere, I don't know when, but, uh, but I got another, yeah, 10 years to like in my head to like play around. And then hopefully I, hopefully I don't, hopefully I don't lose that sense of play. Um, cause I think that's what's going to allow me to continue to stumble upon great ideas. Hmm. I think something we mentioned right at the beginning of the conversation was right now, if you were to die today, you feel extremely grateful. Mm-hmm. Very easy question, but that comes with a lot of baggage. Are you happy? Yeah, I think I'm. I'm very, I'm very fortunate and very happy. Like I have, like I'm married to the man of my dreams. I have like the best dog in the world. I have nephews who are nearby and I get to be an active part of their life. I have like students who are curious and, uh, you know, it feels like reductive to say this as a teacher, but like I get to learn a lot from my students a lot, mm-hmm. but it's, but it's very true. Um, and I have like, yeah, I just, I have a lot to be grateful for. And like things continue to change. Like my parents are getting older and you know, the, the, the change in relationship is happening where I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to start taking care of you a little bit more and in, in different ways. Right. Um, and they deserve it because of how much they took care of me. But I think like, I feel very, yeah, very content, very happy. And I'm, this is partly why I'm so excited to run away to go to grad school. Cause I'm applying to programs where I'll leave for a year. And I think it'll be a good kick in the pants. Cause like, you know, I really believe that like good is the enemy of the great. Mm. Yeah. So I'm happy things are good. And so, um, and I think I got more, like Mm. more in the cards to, to when I get to look back, when I actually retire to be like, heck yeah, I did that. And I'm, I'm okay with not knowing exactly what that is yet, but I want to, the time is now to do it with, I have enough confidence and credibility and, and still enough energy to make it happen. So, yeah. For Brandon, wraps us off. I think you would have seen it right before the recording. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't want to bring up this <laughs> Yeah. That I found. Nice. Yeah. And <laughs> I was just wondering, <laughs> would that Connor be happy to where you ended up today? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm intentionally sad. Do you know what this is from? Do you know yeah, that's from. You were doing your project to feel... Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was this event called Five Days for the Homeless, and we lived homeless for five days to, like, raise awareness and funds yeah. for, for uh, youth living with homelessness. Anyways, uh, I, uh, yeah, I mean, you'd be happy to know that you don't need to have bleach blonde hair uh, <laughs> to think you look good. Um, I, I think he really would be. I think, um, I remember, wow, this is just kind of a funny flashback. I remember being 
uh, I was CUS president at the time. Mm. And I loved that work so much. And I think the root of why I loved it was because I was getting paid nothing, but my whole job was like in service to others. Mm. I wanted to serve so well. I wanted to make students love the school. I wanted to make faculty, I wanted to do all these things. And I was like, how the hell, like, how can I do this um, as a job? And in some weird kind of way, um, yeah, by, by being back here and teaching, like I'm, you know, I didn't think it would be this, but mm. I think it's very much, um, there's something beautiful about a university campus, like youthful energy, ideas, excitement, possibility. And I get to show up to work here and be around that every day. And I know that that Connor looked at and this Connor continues, uh, continues to love that. And I also think that like, yeah, that kid was still lot, yeah, lying to himself about who he was truly. Mm. And I think he'd be happy to know that, yeah, this far on the other side, that it's better than I could have imagined. Awesome. Yeah. And as a tradition on this podcast, okay, I'd like to get your thoughts on a quote left by the guest prior to you. Oh, okay. Oh, damn. Okay. <laughs> and the quote comes from someone in the tech marketing space. Great. And it goes, the night is dark just before dawn. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, who said that originally? That's like not their quote. That was, I think that was, was somebody else. Yeah, yeah, I'm like, I'm going to Google that off. <laughs> Man, I wish I knew who that was so I could sound smart. Um, yeah, I think, I think that, yeah, that rings very true, right? Which is that, um, any of like our turmoils and challenges that we have to face in life, like, this is what's coming up for me is that, you know, that the, the hardest part of it is going to happen right before the glimmer of light that you get to like run towards, uh, becomes available. And I think about like how many quarter life crises I had during undergrad around like, should I be doing this? Should I do that? And, and the, and I remember being like so lost and like in, in some ways in despair, because I felt like everything's here and what's wrong with me and um and then and then you know and then, then there's the dar darkest moments and then you find out you're like oh i can do this instead okay great and so i think uh i think it's a good i think it's a beautiful quote and i think it's important to remind uh, a good reminder for anyone yeah listening is that yeah like what you're what you're going through now ends and What's beautiful about that is that that means the struggle you're going through will end. And so you can know that there's going to be happiness on the other side and the things you're loving the most right now, your friendships, everything, they will end. And maybe we should take some more time to appreciate uh, who we get to spend our time with on the story. Thanks so much.